Back to Dr. Luke's Gospel, we turn this Lord's Day morning and to pick up at verse 19 of chapter 16, Luke 16, verse 19. You may remember that Jesus has been hard after the Pharisees now who scoffed at his teachings about money because they were, as Luke bluntly says, lovers of money themselves. They were money grubbers. They lived for money and for all that it stands And when pursued in that way, this world, this life, this moment, the pleasures of the here and now. You may also remember that a couple of weeks ago, we considered Jesus teaching about money in the parable of the unjust steward. The manager who used money to make friends for his jobless future. Uh, And the lesson that Jesus taught in that parable, make friends for heaven with money on earth. What was admirable about that otherwise deplorable manager was that he had an eye to the future. And he allowed that future to reach back and direct his present actions. Now with another parable, only an even more bracing even in some senses terrifying one, Jesus drives the lesson home. May we have ears to hear toward which end. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we're reminded that there are things in it that ought to cause us to tremble. And Father, we pray that you will grant us the grace to tremble at the thoughts that uh, we're going to be taking up here uh, in the hearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that uh, we will respond to your word in all the ways that uh, we must, chief among them, faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a rich man. This is Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child... Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, 
Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's one of the great ironies of the culture in which we are living that most everyone professes to believe in an afterlife, in an existence that follows this life, continues after we die, but at the same time gives so little attention or thought or consideration to what comes after death. You might recently have read or heard the name of Dr. Mary C. Neal. She's the author of a book that was published around two months ago and is now a number one New York Times bestseller. It's entitled To Heaven and Back. It, uh, it conveys or chronicles her near-death experience, or what might be called her death experience, uh, since this orthopedic surgeon and other surgeons, uh, other um, people, other witnesses, rather, at the scene say that she did indeed die and come back again. She and friends were kayaking in 1999 in Chile when her kayak became trapped under a waterfall. And despite her and her uh, companion's efforts to dislodge the boat, she lost consciousness and drowned uh, before they could pull her out of uh, the water. During the time she lost consciousness and died, she says, she experienced a taste of heaven. With something I can only describe as a pop, my soul separated from my body. I shot above the river into another realm. Fifteen or twenty human spirits rushed forward to welcome me. Now she had my attention since we had just had that uh, sermon a couple of weeks ago about making friends for heaven with money on earth. We hugged and danced. I could not identify them, but I knew that I knew them, even with their outlines blurred. They were sent by God to guide me. We began to glide along a path. We were going home, my eternal home. My companions could barely contain their joy. Joy at the instant of death. A feeling of absolute love pierced me. A feeling greater and so different from anything I'd ever known. However, it was not, in time, not her time to enter, she says. And she was sent back to the world. A few days ago, she was interviewed on television by Matt Lauer, who opened up the interview by saying, We have all thought about this. Anybody who says they haven't thought about what happens after we die is probably lying. Well, Jesus thought a lot about life, about what happens after earthly life, after we die. And we should too. His acute sense of the fact that we live every day of our lives, of this life, on the cusp of another life rises to the surface in Jesus' 
teaching. And like the unjust manager, Jesus' eye for the future sent him back thinking about the present for his hearers. And so a parable. It is along with those parables in Luke's gospel of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, one of the most memorable passages in the Bible. It's certainly an arresting story. Every detail serves to paint the picture for us so well that our ears become eyes. Can't you just see the rich man decked out in all his purple glory and the fine linen and the feasting, feasting, feasting every day on sumptuous meals? He wasn't just rich. He was filthy rich. In that culture, it was rare to eat meat. But uh, I imagined he had meat on the table every day of the week, day in, day out. He lived in a fancy place, as indicated by the fact that the entrance of his property is marked by a gate, probably a fairly ornate one. And at that gate, we find a real study in contrasts. Here was laid a poor man. He's covered with sores, a term unique to Luke, no surprise to us as he looks through a physician's eyes. Open ulcers cover this man's body, and the filthy street dogs love to come and lick those ulcers. His name is Lazarus, which means God has helped. God would have been his only help, of course, because there sure wasn't anyone else helping Lazarus. Not even this rich man who must have walked past Lazarus regularly on his way in and out from his property, and that with total disregard. Jesus said Lazarus desired the scraps from the rich man's table, which is probably exactly why someone has laid him here at this particular gate. Interestingly, Jesus does not say that he actually got those crumbs. At any rate, two men, two Very different men to very different lives. One of them overflowing with riches, not unlike the way we are rich in America today. Healthy, well-fed, well-dressed. The other poor, sick, hungry, in tatters that allow the dogs indiscriminately to lick at his open sores. In terms of this life, one was miserable, the other happy. One wretched, the other satisfied. Even at the point of their deaths, these differences continue. When the poor man died, uh, well, he dies. When the rich man dies, he's probably mourned. People gathered around him, a great procession to a specially prepared tomb where his body was laid to rest with pomp and ceremony. Nothing is said about Lazarus's death, nothing on this side anyway. His body, we're all left to imagine, probably ended up being tossed in a pauper's grave, probably in all likelihood in a, in a common grave with other bodies people who had nothing in this life and nothing at the point of their deaths. All of this setting that Jesus paints so skillfully for us 
uh, serves to make the great reversal of this passage the more striking. In an instant after death, Lazarus is carried off by angels to Abraham's side. That was probably a, a common Jewish image for the comfort and the glory and the, the splendor of paradise, of heaven, to be at the bosom of Abraham. The rich man is in Hades. He's not carried there. Uh, Jesus' parables, in an almost jarring way, just finds him there without explanation, without any expectation that it could possibly be any other way. The rich man died and was buried, Jesus says, and in Hades. Not that all rich people go to hell. Thank the Lord for that, my fellow rich people. But the Bible is many saints who are rich. Abraham, among them, uh, not to mention Job and, and David and others, and many others that you could add. The point is this. The great change, the great reversal, and that to the nth degree. From helpless, hungry, sick, cold, and bleeding with filthy wild dogs for companions, Lazarus is comforted, happy, blessed in the splendor of heaven in the company of Abraham. And from the rich, well-fed, well-dressed, well-thought-of, sated, insatiated situation, the rich man is tormented, frustrated, cursed, thirsty in the flames of hell and separated from the covenant patriarch who will not provide him, cannot provide him a single drop of water from Lazarus's finger. And both of them in those respective states forever. Two men, two different lives, two ultimate and everlasting destinations. And all of that, there's some important lessons for us. Consider four of them with me. First, if you live for the things of earth, you will get nothing from heaven. If you live for the things of earth, you will get nothing from heaven. In life, the rich man lived for the things of earth. He loved his fine clothes. He indulged in all the sumptuous food he could, all that his palate and his stomach could take. In some, he laid up his treasures and he enjoyed his treasures on earth. Or to put it in Jesus' terms from the last parable we read, he did not make friends for heaven. All his friends were on earth and earthly things. He left Lazarus on his own doorstep to die of starvation while his stomach was full and the scraps went to the dogs. This was his choice. He was free to make that choice, and so he did. So in hell, where he groaned for but a single drop of water to ease the pains of that place, there was nothing, nothing for him from heaven. Not even a drop. Abraham answers, verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Now you're in anguish. 
It's foreign to our way of thinking, really. What we want, as we say, we want our cake and to eat it too, to have our cake. That's how it goes, and eat it too. We want to love the things of earth, store up for ourselves treasures on earth, and store up treasures in heaven. But it's a fixed principle, and we'll do well to learn it and learn it well. There is a decision to be made in this life. You cannot have both. As Jesus said back in his Sermon on the Mount, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Or even more recently, we've heard him say, You cannot serve God and mammon. It may not seem fair to you, but that's only because we're accustomed to the balances of fairness, leaning always, or at least mostly, in our direction on both sides. We want it all our way on both sides of the equation. That is largely, by the way, how we ended up in this current national and global financial crisis that we're facing. We want everything. We want it now, and we want it all the time. Life doesn't work that way, not in the financial world, not in the market, and certainly not in God's economy of things. And whatever else the people of hell may say, they'll never be able justly to complain that they were treated unjustly. Whether we can wrap our minds around eternal, everlasting damnation or not. God is and remains and always will be perfectly just. Notice that the rich man does not protest that what he has and what he is suffering is unjust. No matter how long he may remain there, just that it is unbearable. Which leads to the second point, and that is that hell and heaven are separated by a great and fixed chasm. There's no freedom to move between the two of them. In verse 26, Abraham continues, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There is, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, a great divorce between heaven and hell. By divine decree, the two have been separated so that no one can escape the one to go to the other or slide from the one into the other. Some people talk and as if they're going to be able to do that, as though they're going to be able to adjust the future after their death some way, find some way out of hell. They like to joke about it. Not too long ago, I had a waitress in a restaurant tell me she didn't expect to end up in heaven or in hell. Oh, really? She said, I'm too rowdy for heaven And the devil's afraid, if I go there, I'll take over. And she thought that was really funny. Well, she won't be joking about heaven and hell for very much longer. It is appointed for men once to die and then to face the judgment. There are but two ultimate destinations. And there's no road that connects the two. Hell has no exit. Which is why Dante has written over the entrance to hell these words, All hope abandon ye 
who enter here. That's why the third lesson that we must learn is so devastatingly important. I'll not take for granted that all of you in the hearing of my voice right now are on the path that leads to heaven, which means that some are on the path that leads to quite another place. Let me pose it to you in the form of a question. How will you change that path? How can you possibly change your destination before you get there and there remain forever and ever? What made the difference between Lazarus and the rich man in this passage? Simply this. Faith. That's the difference. Faith is the great difference between these two, the rich man and Lazarus. For the rich man, it is a fundamental failure of faith that led him to hell. He was a Jew in Jesus' parable. He was probably religious. He was in the covenant uh, with, uh, that God made with Abraham. The same covenant in which we are. He even calls Abraham father. But too late. What religion this fellow had that may have even found him in the synagogue every week singing psalms and praying prayers was not the saving kind. It was a sham. If he prayed, when he prayed, it was with half a mind. That is, until he found himself in that place where people never pray with half a mind. As Brownlow North once put it, common as it is on earth, people in hell never commit the sin of praying for what they do not want. So I say the rich man was not pegged as a criminal in Jesus' uh, parable. He doesn't rob Lazarus. He doesn't kick Lazarus as he goes by. He doesn't curse him. Lazarus is just a poor man at the gate. As a matter of fact, this rich man probably believed, as most Americans do, that there is a heaven and a hell. He just didn't live as though it really made any difference. In other words, he didn't really believe or take seriously anything the Bible had to say. And so he certainly didn't believe that he needed to be saved, that he was in desperate need of a savior, someone to suffer the wrath of God in his place, lest he himself should suffer it in hell. He just didn't give it a thought. Like, again, so many Americans today, including, alas, gobs and gobs of churchgoers. Or to put it in another way, to turn this backwards, he lived by sight. He lived by sight. He lived by what he could perceive and touch and see and feel on earth instead of considering the greater things, the much more real things. The things so real they make this life seem almost unreal by comparison. He didn't give any thought to eternal things. The things that can be seen only by faith. He was living by sight during this short lifetime. And that is made perfectly clear by the fact that he was continuing to live by sight when he was in hell. Remember his request to Lazarus 
uh, rather, his request to Abraham that Lazarus be sent to his brothers. Besides illustrating the continuing arrogance of this man, who even now in hell would send Lazarus like an errand boy to his brothers, he still doesn't get it. Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. As if the salvation of his brothers would be rendered possible by the sight of a ghost. All sight and no faith this man has in life and in the afterlife. And that's exactly why Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have all they need in the Bible. They have the scripture. That's all they need. What they need is not a specter for their physical eyes to see. What they need is faith in their hearts to believe what's already been revealed in the scripture. But that's what the Jews did. They were very good at it. They demanded signs. And then when they had some signs, they demanded more signs. Fact is, no amount of visible signs and miracles will convince anyone to believe. No one will be, will be convinced by signs to believe. Abraham adds that the man's brothers wouldn't even be convinced if someone rose from the dead. Boy, don't we know that. These 2,000 years have been the demonstration of that sad fact. Jesus has risen from the dead and people by the scores are still rushing headlong to populate hell, preferring it over the place uh, where Christ is. That can be entered only through faith. Lazarus, on the other hand, the only one who ever is given a name in one of Jesus' parables, looks to God. And I think that's why we're given his name. The very meaning of his name is the one whom God helps or one who is helped by God. While the rich man was blinded to the real realities by what his physical eyes could see, the lesser realities... Lazarus had his gaze fixed on the unseen, what only faith can grasp. Angels, demons, heaven, hell, eternity, the Savior. All the things that were found not on the rich man's table, but in God's holy word, Lazarus apprehended by faith. And that's what makes the great difference between one person and another on the earth, between you and the person next to you in the line at Walmart. The great difference. One has faith. Another has not. And that difference, though it may not appear so boldly in this life, will be made perfectly clear to our view in the life to come. And all the difference will be made for all eternity, the rest of eternity. Which brings me to the fourth and final point. I began by pointing out to you that if you live for the things of earth, you will get nothing from heaven. But if you live not for this earth, you will have everything in heaven. Or let me put it another way. If you live by faith, fixing your eyes on Jesus... Heaven will make up for all of the losses, 
all of the pains, anything you suffered on earth. Heaven will more than make up for those. If those who do not believe, do not live by faith, but for the pleasures of earth, will find, as John Bunyan once put it, that one hour in hell will burn out all the pleasures of a lifetime of sinful living? Well, then you who believe will find that ten minutes in heaven will make a beggar forever forget the tears of this life. If there is anything we will learn once and for all when we take our first breath of glory, it will be that the meaning of our lives and the measure of our lives could never be taken from our experiences in this life. If you live to be a hundred, and every day of your Christian life is marked by trials and troubles, every single one of them, they will, all of them, dissolve instantly in the light of heaven. When that light first falls on your face, do you think that Lazarus gives one second of thought to the miseries he suffered on earth in heaven? Not one. Samuel Rutherford said, and we sometimes sing in this sanctuary, whatever we must pass through to get there, heaven will make it all worthwhile. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between, between us and Emmanuel's land, between us and glory. I want you all to think. I'm going to be brutally honest. I've seen some of you zoning out on me here. Wake up. Are you ready? Think very carefully of what the everlasting future holds for you. Those of you who will not trust in Jesus Christ to shape that future for you, think carefully about the darkness, the utter darkness, the misery that lays in wait for you in the future. Because you will need to make everything out of this life. You're going to have to find all your joy in what, 70, 80, 90 years, 100, whatever you got. Now's your chance. But you who in the hearing of my voice are resting on Christ by faith, you think very carefully now about the glory that waits, the splendor of heaven. All of your frustrations, all of your trials, all of your tears, all the difficulties, all of your pains, swallowed up in a moment, gone, when you lay your eyes on what God has in store for you and is preparing for you right now. When you see it all, you won't be able to contain yourself. You'll say, I knew that word happiness, but I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't know I had the capacity for this much happiness and joy. 
If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden now with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Thus saith the Lord. Amen.